Welcome to Transformers, the podcast about how business people and policymakers are creating a sustainable future. I'm your host, Kai Embren. My guest today is Günther Pauli, an entrepreneur in business, culture, science, politics and the environment. I remember Günther from the time in the 1990s when he developed Ecover that became a brand name for environmental friendly cleaning products. But Ginter has done so much more. And to get a full profile, you have to go to Ginter's website, ginterpauli.com. In the program today, it will be insights in Ginter's entrepreneurial business life from the blue economy, zero emissions development, and his great fables for children. Welcome, Ginter. Thank you, Kai. I think it was in Stockholm in the 1990s uh, when we met in uh, the National Step Foundation's office in Stockholm. And uh, you were talking about Ecover uh, and new business models. And it was not only about this Ecover, we're going to describe that a little bit more, but it was also about the building for Ecover uh, and circle economy. In, in 1992, in September, we finally inaugurated that factory that was a first zero emissions factory. We had no waste. We had no, we had our own energy. We had our own, our own wastewater treatment system. I was paying my workers to bicycle to work. I was uh, putting, uh, you know, uh, frying oil uh, into the diesel cars. You know, we, we were a little bit of the, those those pioneers and uh, it was the celebration of passing on to action doing things not just analyzing and debating and proposing and and politicking uh, rather it was the philosophy of getting things done yeah that's uh, interesting also fit very well into our transformers agenda and uh, Maybe we should say that Ecover was a detergent uh, product, wasn't it? Yeah, well, I mean, we were we were a very simple manufacturing process. I mean, soaps and cleaning products, toilet cleaners. Uh, you know, it was nothing extraordinary. Um, but you know, once you start looking underneath the surface, we found that uh, this industry that had just gotten the first kind of eco label because was it biodegradable yes or no and and i realized that biodegradability was a very complex term biodegradation was determined that uh, your mix your formula would degrade for 80 percent in 21 days in a water of 25 degrees and and I came to the conclusion that 25 degrees in Europe, where do you have it? And, and how can you have an 80% biodegradation? That means 20% keeps on washing the fishes and the frogs. Uh, that didn't make sense to me. So since I knew really nothing about the industry, it was common sense that applied. And, and I think this is key. We need common sense, but we need also the commons, the common good to be served. Maybe, so maybe. I said about to set up a new biodegradation standard, which was 99.9% in three days in a water temperature of 12 degrees. And it was not difficult. It was just a matter of telling your chemical engineers, that's what we want. And then we went for it. 
Well, it's interesting when you look back and see also it was uh, two forerunners in the market who <laughs> nearly was in the same area of products. Uh, but uh, I wonder if uh, the product, how important it was to, to take a decision around um, detergent or soap. And the other company in that time is also very much in the front was uh, Gordon and Anita Roddick's The Body Shop. Of and, course, um, and we were great friends. You. Yeah, and they were also connected to the natural step. Uh, and um, I, I think that, but the reason why to make a choice of um, uh, soap, what do you think? You were, you had a vision and you were entrepreneurial. Uh, and why did, did it go into soap and detergents? Well, I was the publisher of Lester Brown's books. So I had a publishing company um, that was publishing the state of the world and vital signs of the World Watch Institute. And Lester Brown gave me an annual shower of uh, statistics and data. And what I realized year after year that none of the statistics were getting better. And I said, I can't be sitting here just as a publisher. I need to turn a few industries around. I was in the in in the electronics. I was I was an entrepreneur with Apple Computer. I had joint venture with Apple. I was doing desktop publishing. I was doing digital media. And I thought this is not at all where we need to be. We need to be in what is known the fast moving consumer goods where huge volumes are consumed and huge pollution is created. The next year, it is 50 years since the UN Stockholm Environment Conference and uh, we have passing by Rio Summit, Paris Agreement, and um, we can see also in the latest IPCC report that we are not on track. And um, so many conferences and, and discussions and initiative. And uh, you write in your own book uh, a sentence that how to get out of the mess we are in together. We're talking about uh, the climate crisis and, and COVID. So what can we say about these 50 years of development? And it seems to be that we are, we are not there to deliver yet. Why? Well, first of all, we don't get things clear in our own minds. I mean, I have to admit that at Ecover, I felt like a failure because I had the most biodegradable products on the market, a great factory, but I was using palm oil and I was destroying the rainforest in Indonesia. And I, I didn't realize. And I think the first obstacle we have is that we never had real systems thinking. We never saw the whole picture. We always got down to either substitute this product with that product, substitute petroleum with solar, um, substitute uh, a non-degradable product with a degradable. But by substituting one and the other, you're not changing the system. We have not taken the time to change the system. And that was my wake up call, is that in 1993, when I was face to face with this massive destruction 
of the rainforests in Indonesia. So I could have my biodegradable competitive palm oil. I realized that what we had to change was the business model. And we're not willing to do it. And even today, we're not willing to do it. I had the privilege of being at COP1, COP2, and COP3. And, and, and as a business person, as an entrepreneur, if you go to three meetings and there is no result, what do you say? No more meetings. Now we're going to Glasgow to go for COP26. I mean, 26 times we meet and no progress. You have to come to the conclusion that you're busy with the wrong kind of approach. And the real approach, I'm honestly saying, is that if we don't change the business models, it's not going to happen. It's never going to happen. And we're not willing to change the business model. That is the crisis I feel we're in. Yeah, so we have sort of looking into uh, the political system. We, we can look into business systems and civil society. And what do we need to, to change the, the track to really to meet the, the ambitions and vision that both you and I deal, uh, deal with in every time of the day? thinking of how do we solve the crisis? Kai, as long as we have a competitive model where I am asked to be the cheapest to compete against the Bangladeshis, the Brazilians and the Chinese and be the cheapest, the only way as a European or a Japanese and even an American I can be the cheapest is by cheating because I have a social cost and a commitment to the middle classes, which is very different from Bangladesh or Brazil. I have a commitment to the environment, which is definitely different than Brazil. And so if I want to take care of an environment and I want to have a social agenda, then my only option may be to cheat on the fiscal side. I mean, don't pay taxes. As many multinationals are not paying taxes today. So our model of being the cheapest as a model of competition is where we have gone completely wrong. We should have a model where we compete on the basis of generating more value, more financial value, more ecological value, more social value and respect for culture and tradition. But we're not there. All these millions of MBAs that graduate every year always are being taught compete on the basis of price. And our distribution is set up like that. And our consumer behavior is always brainwashed. So we're looking for the cheapest. Now, if you have the cheapest, then you will never be able to take care of your environment. I mean, to summarize, Kai, mm. how is it possible that whatever is bad for you and the environment is cheap? And whatever is good for you and the environment is expensive. I mean, who, who designed an economic system where the good is expensive and the bad is cheap? I, I don't get it. And that is where, you know, for the past... Uh, well, 20, 
five years, I've been solely focusing on turning that business model around and small successes here and there, uh, you know, but if we don't do that, we're not going to get out of the game. Well, you, you named it also before, uh, system thinking, and uh, uh, that is coming up more and more in, in, in the discussion uh, about all these issues. Um, but what is the ingredients that need to be changed to come into system thinking? You see, in systems thinking, you are not doing an Excel spreadsheet. <laughs> you know, in the system thinking, there's something that is called uh, feedback loops. So you know that if I'm working on health, I need to work on water. You know that I'm doing water, I have to work about food. If I work about uh, food and water, I'm working about energy. You have to be able to see the whole as your home terrain, as the environment within which you will navigate. And as long as we only treat energy as energy and water as water, and we don't connect it, well, then we are incapable of generating what I call multiple benefits. We have to have a feedback loop that allows us. I mean, you know, my one of my first uh, projects that we started was uh, coffee. You have a cup of coffee, you're only consuming 0.2% of the coffee cherry, 99.8% is wasted. Now, if we take the 99.8% and we farm mushrooms, we can do 500 times more food than we could ever do with the coffee. And the waste of the mushrooms after having harvested them on that waste of coffee is rich in amino acids and a great feed for chickens. So now we have chickens and eggs and mushrooms and coffee, and it all was the same. Now, if we're not ready to cascade as nature does, feedback loops, multiplier effects, you know, we are stuck with a core business where the guys of Nestle told me very bluntly, we're in the coffee business, uh, Professor Pauli, we're not in the mushroom business, and we're certainly not in the feed for chicken business. But as long as we stick to that core business and never get out on into the opportunities to generate more with what you have, then you're stuck with economies of scale and the model of globalization that we have today. And mm -hmm. you're shipping things around all the time. But do we have uh, the leaders uh, that is needed to change and go into system thinkings? It could be within the business society, but also in politics. Well, you know, there is always... Uh, I, I, my position is very straightforward. In the periphery, you find those leaders. In Paris, you don't find them. In Washington, you won't find them. In Brussels, you definitely don't find them. I mean, you don't find people who are thinking out of the box in the centers of power. You have them in the periphery. So that is the reason why we have worked in the past uh, 25 years in setting up a whole range of initiatives 
where we demonstrate how powerful this is. We have Las Gaviotas in Colombia, you know, where we did the regeneration of the forest and we generated full employment. It's the only area in Colombia with full employment. It's the only area in Colombia where we have been able to cut the, uh, the, 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 the birth fatalities uh, uh, to absolute zero. We even closed the hospital for lack of patients because people are getting healthy when they have a good job, good water, good drinking, and they live in an environment without pollution. Uh, we were able to do that on El Liero in Spain, a small island uh, that was considered to be, you know, empty of people. Um, you know, so so what I what I have been able to do the past twenty five years is create at least. Uh, five solid communities around the world where we have demonstrated you can have full employment, you can have innovation, you can have quality of life, uh, you can have a zero emissions environment, uh, you live and work with your own energies, and you're not a community that is driven by an extreme religion. You're just committed to family, to the common good. And that implementation in four different cultures and environments has given me the confidence that it is possible to do it. Now, uh, I haven't converted, uh, you know, France and I haven't converted uh, Italy or Japan, but at least we're coming to the point where we have the scientific solid documentation to demonstrate that a different approach is not only viable, it is much better in terms of quality of life and even in terms of competitive performance. developed something called the blue economy um, and an and action-oriented uh, thinking. And uh, uh, can you describe for the listener a little bit more what the blue economy was? Let, let, let me go back in history and, and, and describe how we came to that. I'm, I'm a member of the Club of Rome uh, since many, many years. <clears throat> And um, within the Club of Rome, I was always the one who came hammering at the economy and the business models, not the macroeconomics, but the microeconomics. And so every meeting that we had at the Club of Rome, I came with another few examples. And, and it was Anders Wiekman and Ashok Kosler who said, well, you know, it's about time you pull it together and see if you can see trends, if you see uh, some some very interesting, uh, you know, patterns that could be followed. So I made an inventory of more than 3,000 innovations that were inspired by nature. Nature inspired. So it was what we called the biomimetics. And then I submitted those to a group of financiers and said, which one would you put money in? And that became my book. The book, The Blue Economy, is the identification of 100 projects out of 3,467 that finance said, we'll put money behind that because that makes sense. And of course, they were all projects 
that were inspired by nature, zero emissions, generating jobs, and gosh, we were changing the business model. And that kind of an approach uh, needed to have a new name because it was going way beyond the green, it was going way beyond the circular economy. This is not about recycling and reducing pollution. This was to put nature back on its evolutionary path. It was generating jobs to get to full employment in the community. And so that was then the blue economy. How can we use what is locally available to respond to all basic needs? The report was published in 2009. I mean, I'm very, 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 very surprised, but also very honored that today it's the book is available in more than 50 languages. And, and, and we have done 2.5 million copies of the book. Uh, so, so the book has gotten some traction where people see that, oh, we can have wind power as a base load if we use it uh, in an intelligent way, because wind is never flowing into this circular that we force them to do with our present day windmills. The wind is uh, going into a much more complex movement. Now, if we have the mathematics to harness the movements of the wind, we can have wind power 24 hours a day. Today, that is a company, that is a new wind power system. We are generating power 24 hours a day and what is very interesting, we only use 5% of the material that a normal windmill requires. As a result, we said, this is a new kind of economy. Now, if I have wind 24 hours a day, then I'm going to have an excess of power. That power we locally turn into hydrogen. And the hydrogen, as we're doing in Spain, is powering fishing boats. So we have the first fishing fleet in the world powered by hydrogen made from baseload wind. And then these fishing boats, they are fishing with air bubbles, not with nets. I don't want to recycle the nets. I don't want nets anymore. The nylon has become a major pollutant into our seas. So don't ask me to recycle the nets. Ask me to have a system that catches the fishes without the nets. And that we do with air bubbles, just the way the dolphins and the whales do. And now we have been fishing for more than 20 years with this philosophy. Um, and uh, we, we have a, a replenishment of fishing stocks because when you have the air bubbles, the mama fish is heavier and she will not be caught into the air bubbles and she can escape. So now we have the females reproducing instead of being eaten with the caviar as a luxury dish. So what I'm trying to say is that once you get going into these clusters of technologies that are all nature inspired, then you're succeeding in really going for a transition and a transformation. And, and, and that's what we have wanted to do with the blue economy. Mm. I see that uh, your visionary and entrepreneurial thoughtful leadership has developed this type of concept. And, and uh, how has it been received? Well, you, you have the usual response that is you get a little applause, you get a tap on the shoulder, they even may give you an award and then they do nothing. I mean, this is unfortunately the, the, the trend. I have started refusing awards because it was celebrating some things that they will never adopt. So 
to me, the key is where do you have a chance to leverage and go over to action? So fortunately, for example, Argentina was very keen on doing it. And, and we have uh, developed an economic development plan for Argentina based on these principles. And, and out of the 10 major projects, uh, five are in implementation. So the policies came into place. The opportunity was appreciated. Maybe the crisis was bigger as well. And uh, so there was a readiness. I have just uh, launched uh, such a report for Morocco. Um, and, and we have uh, over a dozen initiatives that will be taken in Morocco. And all of these initiatives uh, are in transformation from idea to reality. Um, this is, for example, where the concept of using mining waste to make paper, paper that doesn't have any trees in it that we didn't need any water i mean we can hardly imagine making paper without water and trees but that's what we're doing we have a million tons being produced in china morocco will be the first country that does the same the contracts are signed the buildings will be made the factories will roll and we'll be substituting the importation of uh, cardboard from europe with cardboard made from rock dust from the waste of the phosphate mines. And I think this is where we, what we see today is that more and more governments are prepared to move, not the European Union, not the Americans, but more and more governments around the world because the economic crisis is very hard. It's hurting. I mean, we're losing a whole middle class across the board. I mean, when we're going into details about statistics, the greatest challenge of the COVID, um, and this will only reconfirm the trend that was going on, this policy of always going cheaper and cheaper and cheaper and cheaper and have economies of scale and closing uh, the villages and the communities has led to an evaporation of the middle class. We are losing the middle class. And if you lose the middle class, you're losing democracy. And that is the challenge we're facing. So our work, is to really regenerate the community with jobs, with local resources. And instead of having the closure of a mine, the, the, the negative of the mine is transformed into an opportunity to have a cardboard industry that is cutting carbon emissions by more than 70% because we're not using water anymore and we're not cutting the trees anymore. And see, you see, Kai, uh, in the periphery, and the periphery now is defined as everything but Europe, America and Japan, we really see an interest. I mean, we are developing uh, a concept plan for uh, Saudi Arabia, for Amman, for uh, Abu Dhabi. They're very keen on seeing how they can revive their traditions in fishing on the principles that we've just described. Uh, we're noticing a revival of, for example, the whole fruit culture uh, throughout Africa, instead of uh, just farming what the Europeans want to buy, farm what the Africans need, um, and which we're not doing. Um, so I mm. believe that the periphery is ready to roll and the most ardent obstacle today has become Europe.
as a visionary and an entrepreneur, you also had to fight. How has it been to be an entrepreneur with so many sort of obstacles and, and people who not are follow what you say and, and you are starting again and try to push? Uh, the role of an entrepreneur is it's a pretty hard life. If you have a listener here who are really an entrepreneur, it, what is the advice for, for them to, to, to take on board a visionary entrepreneurial thinking uh, with the challenges we have? Kai, you only learn by getting hurt. <laughs> you only learn not only by failing, by getting hurt. And, and when you're hurt, you have to ask yourself the question, am I ready to take the next step? And of course, the main lesson that I learned is that I have to stop trying to be the wave. I cannot be the wave because lots of people will stop the waves and, and make the wave impossible. I have to learn, as I did learn over the years, to be a surfer. I have to surf the waves. So I have to go to places where the energy is positive, where the desire to move in a different direction is present. And I surf the waves. And I think an entrepreneur who's able to identify the waves and go with the waves and, and strengthen the waves and, and show that you can choose the waves you're going to surf, uh, that will be an entrepreneur who can be effective. I think the last 10 years, I've been so much more effective than the other 40 years that came before. And, and I think this effectiveness is uh, really uh, thanks to the fact that I did get hurt and thanks to the fact that I did see that once you, you, you surf on these opportunities, um, you can take a whole ocean with you. Soon, a lot of people going or virtual are, uh, will be in, in Glasgow and uh, talk about the climate change challenges. And uh, with the relationship also to the IPCC report. And then you have also uh, been pushing for a solution and done a lot of work around the zero emissions uh, that uh, as an, in an early stage, a long time before uh, the, the initiative comes in, in other organizations with the zero emission targets. But what was behind uh, the work you did with the zero emissions research initiative, the CERI? So in 1989, after reading the 1989 State of the World Report of Lester Brown and the World Watch Institute, I said, this is impossible. Look at the statistics. We have to have zero emissions. And I registered the name zero emissions. And I wrote an article describing that all industry should not have zero emissions as a target, but it should have it as a starting point. I mean, we cannot go for a target as we're doing now with 2050. That target of 2050 is now if we really want to have a real a serious contribution. So I registered it 
And, and then I built this factory, which was a zero emissions factory. Japan, when Japan got the mandate for the COP3 in Kyoto, they set up this think tank and they asked me if I was prepared to lead the think tank out of the United Nations University in Tokyo. And Heitor Gurgolina de Souza, who was then director of the United Nations University, also a member of the Club of Rome, very wholeheartedly supported the proposal that a young 37-year-old would take the leadership of uh, this uh, think tank that was going to provide input to COP3. How could the Kyoto Protocol be the basis for new business models? It was an extraordinary experience. I mean, we had at the first dozens, then hundreds, then even thousands of scientists. What we were able to do is gel a lot of the thoughts and ideas of science into business models. The only thing that happened is that Europe and America decided it was going to be cap and trade. And it was going to be certificates that they're going to issue. And as a result, all of these discussions that we have had about changing the business model were put to the side. I mean, in Kyoto, I had a formal presentation and there were four, there were four people in the room, including myself. And I think the other three were in the wrong room because no one was interested in a new business model. And it's then that with Anders Wiekman, who was at UNDP policy director, it was decided that let's get the models on the market. And, and this has been the most uh, wonderful gift in my life that after, let's say, the failure, in my view, of uh, the Kyoto Protocol, I was given the chance to start implementing projects, fast track. In the third world, we started in Namibia, we went to Fiji, we were in Colombia, we were doing projects demonstrating, but we had a backup of thousands of scientists. And, you know, as an entrepreneur, you never have that. As an entrepreneur, you never have access to science. So I became this hybrid kind of person with a very strong scientific backup, getting answers to hundreds of questions I would have and lots of patience from the scientists to explain why my idea would not work or maybe why that could work. Um, and it came to me, Kai, as a very hard one. Having been at COP1, COP2 and COP3, I don't see the point of COP26. I don't see it. Absolutely don't see it. I think it's an absolute, it's a waste of time. It's a waste of effort. And, and we should definitely change the rhetoric from doing less damage to the environment to putting nature back on its evolutionary path. Instead of trying to stop the loss of biodiversity to regenerate biodiversity again. listen to Greta Thunberg and other young people around the world. Uh, are they the savior of uh, our planet? Well, the beauty of Greta is that she wakes us up. I mean, she really woke up a lot of people. And we kind of had to look inside and say, oof, are we really that bad? And yeah, and Greta would say, yes, you really are not doing the job. 
you have failed in your job. But here comes a new approach that I think is important. When Greta said that she can't have the solutions, and she's right, she's not being educated, not being prepared to give the solutions that the rest of the world has not been prepared to embrace or even think about. So this has come to the basis of my largest initiative that I've ever undertaken, which is, of course, in education. We have to inspire young people. I mean, Kai, I'm sure you and I were singing when Roger Walters was saying, singing, you know, we don't want no education, we don't want no mind control. I, I confess to me, you were singing that as well. I mean, I, I thought this was really it. That that's what we had to say. Today, we cannot say that we don't want education. We need the young people to be inspired, inspired by nature, inspired by opportunities. And what do we give them? Netflix and video games. And then we want them to step forward and change the world. That doesn't work. So I came to the conclusion that one of my greatest responsibilities as a father of six children was to inspire my children, inspire them to do so much better than their dad ever thought he could do. And that inspiration translated into my, my fable writing. And, yes. and, and, and sometimes you don't know why you write the fable, it starts leading its own life. But it did. Oh, you reach out to, to a lot of young people about children's stories. So why, when did this occur in, in your mindset when uh, to start to do this? Well, Kai, the first of fables uh, I wrote when my son was born in uh, 1990, it's exactly when you and I met. And that's when I thought uh, I need to build the zero emissions factory. That's when I started writing. Um, today, I have 365 fables written. Uh, 288 are in every single Chinese school. Every school has 288 of my books. It's, it's, I, I never offered them. They said, we need them. We want them. We developed with the Brazilians the pedagogy. Uh, that has been demonstrated to work very well so that young people think that they are the entrepreneurs for the common good. And, 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 and we're positive because we're bombarded with so much negative news and we're imposed so many ridiculous little rules in this COVID times uh, that children, young people, young in age and young at heart, really want to be inspired and be able to pass on to something very creative discovering what they have in them as being something unique that they didn't even know they had and their parents certainly didn't either. So I think if we want to change the world, Kai, we have to say, we have to tell every day a great story to a young person. And if we as adults take it upon us to inspire the young people every day, and it only takes a few minutes, I mean, this world will change, change very quickly. I think this will be the last word uh, from us today. Thank you very much, uh, Günther, for this Thank you, Kai, uh, for having me. Thank you so much uh, for giving this opportunity. Thank you very much, Günther.
I'm Kai Embren. Follow me on Twitter and LinkedIn, where I will be announcing the future guests to this podcast. And you can expect about two programs a month, and each guest has a unique story of making business and society sustainable. So find out more. Visit my homepage, kaiembren.org. Thank you for listening. Thank you.